0: Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Louther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. And welcome back to the latest episode of Nuclecast. As always, I am your host, Adam Lauder. And today we have retired Major General Rick Evans, who is currently the executive director of the National Strategic Research Institute, my boss. And he has had a long and extensive Air Force career in which he ended his career you were the MA to the commander in your last job before retiring, correct? Isn't that what you? are
1: That's correct, uh, amongst a few other things that I was doing.
0: <laughs> the... Yeah, so he's a uh, he's had a great and interesting career that we'll we'll get into a little bit today as we talk about. We've talked a lot about uh, the different components of the nuclear enterprise. We've talked DOD's role. We talked in NSA's role. We've talked the production facilities. We've talked about the science labs. And in one of our recent podcasts, we talked to an executive at Fluor and how they contribute. So today I asked Rick if he would come and talk about FFRDCs and UARCs and and how they contribute to the research and development component and mission of the nuclear enterprise. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So with that, Rick, welcome to the show hey adam
1: thanks uh, it's great to be with you uh you know, I know i've listened to other podcasts and uh you know the the information that is being presented is of course very valuable and interesting and uh, so i look forward to getting into the discussion a little bit about uh how we planned it I, I obviously run a university affiliated research center or you for short in there and we're very similar in many cases but different in other cases with the federally funded research and development corporation so i look forward to talking about that and and other things uh as well, especially uh, the missions of U.S. Strategic Command and strategic deterrence and things that I'm very passionate about, having spent a lot of my career focused on those.
0: Now, one thing, I have a bit of bad news that I haven't told you yet, so I'm going to tell it to you live on the show, and that is we were, Nuclecast was the number one English language podcast discussing nuclear weapons in China until recently when the Chinese blocked us. So we've lost all our Chinese listeners. I know that's very disappointing. Uh, it was disappointing to me because I was very proud of being number one at something. And so uh, I just wanted to let you know that. So note, save your tears for when we're when, when the show's over.
1: Well, you know, uh, I don't know if I'd uh, shed a tear or a smile about that. <laughs> we can do it either way. But, uh, you know, I think the, the important thing you know that I always remind folks on there, and obviously our potential adversaries out there have interest in in what we're doing. But you know, this is a uh, tremendously important mission in there, and uh, it's unfortunate that our audience uh, over in the indo pacom theater isn't going to get to hear the whole story in there. But I'm sure uh, I'm sure the the folks that are interested in this are probably still listening to your podcast,
0: even if the <laughs> can't
1: get involved in it.
0: <laughs> so. So uh, let me just ask one question about your pretty extensive career. As you look back over your Air Force career, what would you say was that one job that you look back and you say, I wish I could do it all again? What What was that one job?
1: Yeah, well, um, you, you already alluded to it. Uh, I spent uh, 35 and a half years uh, in the Air Force and the Air National Guard um, Amazing career. Uh, you know, I could point to lots of things that were really cool, uh, you know, like flying Mach 2 in the RF 4 Phantom um, at 100 feet AGL, and you know, uh, over Mach 1, uh, and flying around the world, uh, leading combat operations. But, you know, as I think back, uh, Adam, uh, you know, my last seven years uh, I spent at U.S. Strategic Command as a, uh, a one star and a two star. And and uh, for me, that was the pinnacle of my career. I'm a, I'm a Nebraska native, uh, Omaha, um, Un- University of Nebraska Omaha graduate. Um, as I used to tell folks in the building, I toured SAC headquarters uh, with my family in about 1974 and had a chance to get exposed to the mission. I grew up around uh, Offutt uh, and around here in Omaha. It was more known as SAC, Versus off it, um, and uh, and so getting a chance to finish my career there was really the highlight of of a lifetime for me and and the uh, you know we may have some chances to get into more of the specific things that I was involved in but you know the the last several years there when I was the uh, what they call the mobilization assistant to the commander um, you know that was with uh, Admiral Cecil Haney um, and General John Hyten were the two commanders that I worked directly for. Uh, and just prior to that, I was a mobilization assistant to the deputy commander, uh, and that was uh, Lieutenant General Jim Kowalski and uh, Lieutenant General Seve Wilson. And, uh, and, you know, interestingly, I mean, those are all really, really outstanding leaders, especially as we think about the nuclear enterprise and uh, and the strategic deterrence mission. I mean, those are four pretty prominent names. And obviously I worked with a lot of great folks on the staff as a whole, um, including, for example, Admiral uh, Charles Richard, Uh, worked with him three separate times in there. But, uh, you know, I had a chance just before I transitioned to that job to be the acting deputy commander at U.S. Strategic Command for four months between General Wilson and Admiral Richard when he came back. And that immediately moved up to the staff uh, to be General Heighton in uh, Admiral uh, Haney's uh, MA and, and the, the opportunity to to uh, be involved in the mission, not only managing the reserve forces, about 500 personnel assigned to STRATCOM, but really the other things that they allowed me to get involved with, nuclear command and control, uh, training and certifying new flag officers on the battle staff, serving as an airborne emergency action officer on the airborne command post, I'm uh, uh, at over 100. Uh, alert sorties uh, on the E6B. Um, and and then finally, something really interesting, especially for an operator, to to basically lead the integration uh, of the new STRATCOM Command and Control Facility or C2F for short, and operationalizing that to be kind of the, the pulse of strategic deterrence uh, in our nation. Uh, amazing facility. You know, uh, over a billion dollar Milcon project that we turned into a weapon system and the platform that we uh, accomplished our global strategic deterrence mission. So, you know, as I think about those, uh, you know, you could separate out the fact that I was a flag officer and just think about the opportunities that those presented me in my hometown um, to do really important work uh, for the nation. Uh, truly, it was a highlight of my career. If I had a chance to go back and do that again, I would certainly do it. In fact, in my UARC role, since I'll we'll probably talk about U.S. Strategic Command as our sponsor, I do have an office down there and get down periodically. And what I always tell people is I miss being able to do the operational mission. Can I get down in the battle deck and, and do a exercise with you? And and uh, and so uh, I clearly would uh, would love a chance to to go back and rewind that and and do it again if I had a chance to. So r- really blessed and honored with amazing uh, experiences throughout my Air Force and uh, and military career. And uh, the highlights certainly had to be my last uh, seven years working at U.S. Strategic Command headquarters.
0: Thanks. Yeah, it's uh, you know it is it's a pretty interesting career. A lot of folks who have spent their careers in the you know, in uniform service have had great experiences. Uh, so
1: yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, most uh, everybody I talk to, you know, that uh, especially those that have served and retired, um, you know, really appreciate their time in uniform and and just like, uh, you know, my role, I think as we talk about UARCs and FFRDCs and, and uh, if you were to talk to the national labs and And uh, the civilian, especially the senior civilian workforce uh, across the Department of Defense, a lot of folks that served in uniform have transitioned to other roles, still serving the national security needs of the nation. And so, you know, I'm happy to get a chance to continue doing that in a little bit different role.
0: So as we shift and talk about UARCs and FFRDCs, a lot of folks sort of have a vague idea of what they are, you know, just and what the, what's the difference between an FFRDC and a UARC and then how they contribute uh, to national security? And for some specifically, not all, but some are focused on the deterrence of the nuclear mission. Could you explain for us the difference between FFRDCs and UARCs and then what do they do? What are they tasked to do? Sure.
1: Yeah. So if you think about it broadly, and I'm going to use kind of the terminology that uh, that you might hear from the Department of Defense Leadership. And so um, university affiliate research centers, federal funded research and development centers fall under the of defense for research and engineering. So they're part of that, you know, RDT and E enterprise that really focuses on keeping the. Um, that superiority that we enjoy across uh, our warfighting capabilities as a nation. And so so the uh, both of them contribute along with a lot of other things in there. So, so if you think about how uh, the Department of Defense does R&D, you know, it's really many, many ent- entities and you already mentioned kind of in the preliminary discussion, who else we've talked to on the podcast and what roles they play in there. And so if you think about, uh, you know, what we're talking about today, uh, FFRDCs and UARCs really bring a different element to that enterprise or that ecosystem, as the Department of Defense will refer to to both FFRDCs and UARC. And and I can tell you that uh, Honorable Miss Shu, who leads that enterprise today, she, in her briefings, as uh, she talks to various folks out there, Congress and others, talks about how FFRDCs and UARCs specifically bring a unique capability to the Department of Defense. And so, you know, one of the things I, I took away from the slides that uh, that she has presented in the past is uh, is, you know, that enterprise brings over ten thousand experts, um, primarily engineers, scientific, STEM background folks, unique research capabilities into the DoD ecosystem to to meet our R and D needs in there. And so, you know, when you think about it, that is the focus, and and so you have. Essentially, those two entities involved in about all aspects that you would, uh, you know, you would have in the R&D world in there. Now, there are some differences. And so as you think about, uh, you know, the uh, let's start off with FFRDCs. Uh, and again, as mentioned earlier, I run a UARC. Um, I've not ever been employed by an FFRDC, but uh, familiar enough to understand kind of the, uh, you know, the role that they play and, and FFRDCs are, across the government. In fact, the, the Department of Energy sponsors more FFRDCs than anybody in there. But within the Department of Defense, since we're primarily talking about our missions, uh, you know there, there are 10. and uh, most everybody on the podcast will be familiar with the names in there and I can read them off for you. but uh, you know broadly, they they're in three categories. and there R&;D labs, systems engineering integration centers, and study and analysis centers. And and so when you think about the names, Lincoln Lab, MIT Lincoln Lab, Software Engineering Institute, Institute for Defense Analysis, Aerospace MITRE, Center for Naval Analysis, uh, uh, ran and then RAND sponsors three separate uh, FFRDCs. And the sponsorship of those really ranges across the Department of Defense uh, to include services, but also OSD-level uh, sponsors in there. And... You know, the FFRDCs and UARCs, they share a lot in common. And, and maybe that's a good way to, to start this off. And, you know, um, the, both are unique entities and covered in federal law. And uh, and that allows the uh, FFRDC and UARC community to have a very unique and long-term relationship with the Department of Defense. Um, and because of that relationship, they have – specific contract provisions um we are given access to information facilities personnel across the department that's uh, that's unique and different from a defense contractor what you call a traditional defense contractor and uh and so because of that and there are also limitations on the ability of uh UARCs and ffrds to compete with for-profit entities out there for work and and that's primarily because we're given access that's unique and we cannot, uh, we're not allowed to use that access and information to essentially compete with for-profit industries. And both FFRDCs and EORCs are focused on providing essential research and development capabilities to the department that they would not otherwise be able to find readily. Um, uh, And so that allows some of the, you know, those entities to have very niche markets in there where, the the department itself would not be able to, to find the talent it needs to do this mission long-term. And so, so when you think about those three, talking about FFRDCs again, here, you know, uh, studies and analysis is pretty common. Uh, Most people are familiar with those types of contracts. There are, um, for-profit defense contractors that do kind of work, but really, you know, the FFRDCs are focused on that area and there's five of them in there. And, uh, and that is, uh, doing research on policy, decision-making, the issues facing the Department of National Security, et cetera. Um, and, and so those, uh, those five, uh, that's half of the enterprise in there, um, really are not the largest ones. In fact, I think I've seen statistics in the past to that say that's a fairly small investment from the department in those areas, maybe less than 25% of the total. The real... Investment occurs in systems engineering and integration centers, and the audience will be familiar with Aerospace and MITRE's National Security Engineering Center uh, as the two that fit into there. And together, I mean, they have about half of the overall funds that uh, that are provided to FFRDCs. And then the research and development labs, those are a common and, and probably have more in common with URX than, than the others do. Um, And they fill an essential role at at really developing technology and providing solutions to problems uh, across the department um, as we we look to maintain our technological edge. And so all of those, uh, you know, the, the receive federal appropriations. So in the budget, they're going to have a certain level of funding for FFRDCs that allow them to. Perform the mission for their sponsors and for the department, and that is a key difference between UOXS and FFRDCs. UOXS do not get direct appropriated funds to do work; they they only get funds typically when they are awarded work to do. And so, let me pause there and see if that kind of gives you, a, a, you know, a broad context of of the FFRDC uh, ecosystem and where else uh, we might want to drive down further onto that topic.
0: Well it's a great it's a great opportunity to pause and take a quick break. You're listening to NucleCast, and we are with Major General Retired Rick Evans, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the fifteenth annual Nuclear Deterrent Summit. Come join NucleCast at the Summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023, at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the NucleCast website at anwadeterred.org slash NucleCast. All right, and we're back with Major General Retired Rick Evans, and we're talking about the difference between UARCs, FFRDCs, how they contribute to national security. So you you mentioned sort of briefly the difference. So as I understand it, an FFRDC is one of the big differences. Is ff are POM. So, for example, for many who are listing might might have an Air Force background, they're familiar with brands Project Air Force, which has a palmed budget in the Air Force budget. Whereas, as you said, UARCs do not have a palmed budget. They they have to, you know, the, their sponsor will say, "Hey, we want you to do some work," and then they'll pay for that work. So, like a the Perhaps the most well-known UARC might be the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Everybody seems to know them. Or the Georgia Tech Research Institute with all the cyber works that they do. They're quite well-known. But there's there's others. There's, I think, 14 UARCs. That's correct. And you you did a good job describing all the different – I didn't even really think about the differences in some of the FFRDCs. But could you describe the difference, and you mentioned this, the for-profit contractors and how they contribute in a different way than FFRDCs and UARCs?
1: Yeah. So if you think about uh, the uh, and the key focus, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is that FFRDCs and UARCs exist to provide essential long-term capabilities to the department that, would be difficult to replicate in the for-profit contractor world and and so uh, if you if you read articles about uh, URX and FFRDCs you will oftentimes see complaints from the for-profit world that uh, that these unique entities are receiving non-competitive work awarded to them through the government and you know why can't a for-profit uh, contractor do some of that work and You know, uh, that's possible in there, but what the the Department of Defense is after is that long-term relationship that results in us being considered a trusted partner to the government, and this applies to both UARCs and FFRDCs, that allows us to act in the best interests of the government versus a for-profit contractor who has a profit motive by definition and uh, has to report to the shareholders. And so that's that's the, really the key in the difference between a, a traditional uh, defense contractor and the FFRDCs and the UARCs. And this is not a new thing, by the way, Adam. I mean, uh, if you think back, the FFRDCs go back to some to the 40s. You know, I think the the youngest FFRDC is is probably more than 30 or 40 years old. Um, UARCs, you mentioned Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. That relationship goes back to the 40s also. UARCs came out of World War II. Um, and uh, but UARCs themselves, that that actual nomenclature and uh, definition didn't actually come into play until the mid '90s, and uh, and that's when it was codified. And uh, and so you have that. And uh, you know, uh, if you think about, it, there are some some UARCs uh, established, uh, I think three or four in the last uh, fifteen years. Uh, interestingly, you mentioned Project Air Force. Uh, you know, just by virtue of Dollar figures in their project Air Force is probably I haven't looked at their budget lately, but maybe in the vicinity of fifty or sixty million dollars a year appropriation. Um, if you think about the example you use, Johns Hopkins, well, they have multi-billion dollar IDIQ contracts, you know, running at a UARC uh, sponsored in their case by the Navy, and so so there's a pretty big difference in uh, you know sc- size and scope and, and what the focus is uh, for for how that uh, capability that's provided by those unique entities uh, works to benefit the government. Does that answer the question that you were after?
0: Yeah. And just as we think about, you know, FFRDCs, RAND and aerospace versus UARCs, APL, NSRI, uh, GTRI. And then the the contractors, most people are familiar uh, with Booz Allen or SAIC. And then there's smaller contractors, you know, uh you know, answer, for example, uh provides support to Air Force A ten, you know, and for many, you know, for much of my I spent most of my career as a as a DOD civil servant. And I would often get asked, oh, are you, you're a contractor? And I would say, no, I'm a civil servant. And the difference is, you know, we we often we sit next to each other and we do the same work, but the government will have sort of a a limit on the number of civil servants and then it will often use what are called ANAS services to fill those, those other, you know, as they expand or contract over time. But that's, that's sort of separate from what the FFRDCs and UARCs do since, as you well noted, it's focused on R&D over the long, ta- long haul.
1: Yeah, that's accurate. Uh, and I would say with the advisory and assistance services uh, that you mentioned, Um, FFRDCs clearly do that. That's actually one of the things they do, and and they manage it. You know, we think of uh, FTEs, managing full-time resources at, you know, a government entity out there, as you described. They use what they call STEs, which are the equivalent of that. And um, I can tell you from the briefings we've sat in, uh, there's always uh, competition within the DOD to get access to The full-time capabilities available from the FFRDCs in terms of those personnel that are highly qualified and sit right next to the government civil servants out there. I would add, however, that uh, both FFRDCs and UARCs can do ANAS type of work for the government. Uh, That falls into the competencies of both. Um, There are some limitations on that. I mentioned the not competing for the work, et cetera. We don't generally get involved in these large omnibus type contracts to provide that type of a service to any government entity. However, we do provide subject matter experts and folks that uh, that can work. And and so, I mean, we have examples of that within NSRI, you know, with our staff down at U.S. Strategic Command, you know, somebody like you being a good example of that, providing support and uh, and essentially uh, meeting the requirements of the sponsor and DOD. So that's not out of the question. That's just not the primary thing that we do uh, amongst the UARC side of that world. And I can go into more details kind of on the UARC side of that uh, when when you are ready to go into that.
0: Yeah, why don't we go ahead and shift into sort of some of these roles that, that folks play. And then, you know, we're affiliated, we, the NSRI, you and I, are affiliated with the University of Nebraska. And, you know, as people well know, GTRI is Georgia Tech-affiliated, APL's Johns Hopkins-affiliated. And so how do these UARCs bring in faculty, and how do they staff to meet the requirements of their sponsor?
1: Yeah. Now, you know, you just highlighted probably the biggest difference between an FFRDC and a UARC, and that is the university affiliation uh, by statute uh you have to have an affiliation with a university uh that's a sponsoring you so if you think about university affiliated research center uh it, it's a dod designation so it implies two things a government sponsor within dod and a university sponsor on the academic side of that and so if you it, it's uh if you think about why the dod wants to do that uh, and you've covered in previous podcasts, you know, kind of that national labs, FFRDCs, for-profit defense contractors, all the resources available to the Department of Defense in terms of R&D and maybe broadly RD, and e uh, type activities, even ANS uh, on top of that. Um, well, all of that capacity out there can't meet the department's needs in total. and And so the department recognized that um, and they also recognize that within our academic world out there, so think about universities in there, that there's a lot of research capability and capacity that goes on uh, and is available uh, within the university system. And and so the department wanted to be able to tap that. And so that's why they created UArts, is to basically have an easy way to access the unique capabilities that exist on campuses around the country. And uh, you, you talked earlier about, Fourteen UARs. There are fourteen. Uh, they're in the process of establishing the fifteenth. It'll be the first one sponsored by the Air Force, um, and each one of them has a what we call core competencies, or you know, I describe it as I talk to other audiences in their lanes in the road, because each one of the the existing fourteen out there is not supposed to duplicate the capabilities of another UARC. and and so. Uh, and we also are not supposed to compete outside those lanes with for-profit contractors and other things out there. And so it sort of defines the work that we can do for the Department of Defense um, without having to compete for it. So once you become a UARC, you have an uh, a overriding IDIQ contract with your sponsor, and the sponsor and other government entities can then place work, with that UARC using that IDIQ contract without further competition. And so so that is the uniqueness of a UARC that tied to the university. And just broadly for the audience, you know, I mentioned you have to have a federal sponsor. And so the, the Army sponsors four UARCs. Uh, you mentioned one of the big ones, which is Georgia Tech uh, Research Institute uh, sponsored uh, by the Army. and falling underneath the university, which is a Georgia Institute of Technology. And the Navy is the largest sponsor of URX. They've got five. You mentioned the biggest, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. They're, of course, associated with Johns Hopkins University. Um, And then there are some cats and dogs, uh, and we're one of those. So uh, NSRI is sponsored by U.S. DRACOM, the only uh, URX sponsored by a combatant command. And then you've got a couple sponsored by the Secretary of Defense's office, um, which is uh, Stevens Institute of Technology Systems Engineering Research Center. And, uh, and then one in Alaska, geophysical detection of nuclear proliferation. And then you've also got the Undersecretary Defense for Intelligence sponsoring uh, one at the University of Maryland, which is the Applied Research Lab for Intelligence Security, or known as ARLIS for short. And so you've got a you know a wide variety of things in there, and to even include – the Missile Defense Agency sponsoring the Space Dynamics Lab at Utah State. So, you know, what, what the government has done and this is Department of Defense has done is look for capabilities it requires uh, to support its RDT&E needs. Where do those exist in the university ecosystem? Uh, when they establish in New York, It's competition. And so they allow any university to, uh, that meets the requirements out there to submit a package. And so uh, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary at NSRI. We had to compete. I think there were six universities that competed back in 2012 to become STRATCOM's UARC. And so, you know, it is a, a competitive process to become a UARC. But once you become a UARC, the goal is then to make it easy for the Department of Defense to rapidly access the capabilities that exist Within your university system or the the UARC itself, to meet its needs going uh, you know day to day, looking out long term, and to become a long term asset for the department, as I mentioned earlier.
0: Okay, so that's a that's a pretty good explanation. You know the and I hope the listeners, as we've sort of built out this, as you called it, an ecosystem, from the Department of Defense to the Department of Energy, UARCs are sponsored. Uh, by the DOD itself in terms of their authorities and they're sponsored by services. And uh, so we are establishing it. So as we were just about out of time, how do you see the biggest contribution of UARCs and FFRDCs to the nuclear mission specifically? What are they doing that's unique, that's different, that, that matters?
1: Yeah, so, um, and especially, and I can use us as an example at NSRI, you know, being sponsored by U.S. Strategic Command, obviously, the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence are job one for for U.S. STRATCOM, and, and so STRATCOM having a UARC, that played a role in why they are the only combatant command uh, that has access to that. And so, what we look for is ways to tie, uh, you know, faculty members with unique interests in... You know, maybe it's the human factors of, uh, of strategic deterrence or, you know, how do we detect um, nuclear capabilities of other nations out there or how do we offer innovative solutions? Let me give you one example. Uh, in, in our case, we're, uh, we're under contract to develop uh, a prophylactic medication to treat acute radiation syndrome or maybe present, prevent it and so if you think about that you know that's not one a for-profit pharmaceutical company is ever going to want to get involved in um but it may be a requirement for our warfighters sure especially if you're going to put for example special operators into Ukraine or maybe there's nuclear uh materials that are still around there from Chernobyl or maybe we actually get into some type of a nuclear exchange at some point in there and so so thinking about the capabilities academia can present to the very unique area of uh, strategic deterrence and nuclear operations is pretty huge. And, and if you think about, uh, you know, work across the URX spectrum, whether it's software, workforce development. So, you know, bringing, uh, we sponsor a student intern program, as do many of the URXs, to try to bring young talent into our national security workforce that we hope one day maybe go to the you know the national labs that are developing the next generation nuclear weapons, uh, and so that's a huge part of our mission. In there, we have academia interested in in very unique aspects of of the strategic deterrence mission, and uh, and so we want them to be interested. We sponsor and and most of the URAC sponsor an independent research and development grant program to bring ideas out there, and uh, and then provide those to the department and let the department choose where it wants to invest more money in developing those concepts further. And so so that's a uniqueness that only academia can provide, um, and it allows the department, and especially in the strategic deterrence and nuclear missions in there, to really tap uh, an audience of experts who have a different perspective than your typical government employee or a uniformed military member in these very unique mission areas. And so I see... UARCs and FFRDCs broadly playing a larger role across the spectrum of strategic deterrence and nuclear operations and especially when you think about things like NC three. You know, we're trying to develop the next generation, the vision for a future of NC three. Who better to bring into that picture than subject matter experts from outside the department to think about solutions that may be outside of what we've experienced for the last fifty or sixty years in the in the Department of Defense world?
0: All right, we'll let you have the last word there. I want to thank Major General Retired Rick Evans, who is currently the Executive Director of the National Strategic Research Institute, for joining us today to fill out our discussion of who contributes to deterrence and to the nuclear enterprise. And, you know, hopefully over these last episodes, you've sort of figured out who's doing what, where, and how it all fits. And so we want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us, and we will hope to see you on the next episode. Well, we just had a great conversation with Major General Retired Rick Evans, and I don't know about you, but I work at a UARC, and I still learned some of the differences in who does what in the FFRDC UARC system and how they're funded and some of the, that information. So that was pretty interesting. Uh, hopefully, it was informative for you as you sort of better understand who does what and how they contribute to this much bigger nuclear enterprise, because we generally think DOD and NNSA. But as we've seen on previous episodes, we've talked to, you know, vice president at Fleur and we've we've talked to folks everywhere. And so this this enterprise is it's you know it's relative to DOD, it's five or six percent of the budget. But it is, you know, it's got a lot of moving parts that are all working together. So hopefully that was informative for you. It was informative for me.